This episode includes adult language and descriptions of domestic violence. Please use discretion. Okay, on with the show. There's a major difference there um, in terms of who's allowed to defend themselves. You have the right to stay in your own home and be able to meet force with force. What is that supposed to mean for domestic violence incidents? I'm screaming at people, please call, call 911. When black and brown women stand up to oppressive systems, they're often accused of being angry and therefore dismissed. Welcome back to In Sickness and in Health, a podcast about health and social justice. I'm Dr. Celine Gounder. This season, we're looking at gun violence in America. Last episode, we looked at the deadly combination of guns and intimate partner violence. Today, we're digging deeper into this topic. We're going to look at what happens when women use guns, sometimes with deadly results, to defend themselves. The answers aren't so obvious. So if I claim that I am afraid for my life and therefore have used lethal violence against another person, it has everything to do with what is my race, what is my gender, and what is the race and gender of the person I've killed or maimed. This is Caroline Light. She's a professor at Harvard College. So it's actually a really complicated dance, a complicated alchemy of different identities that we have to take into consideration when we think about lethal self-defense in this nation. Because when you kill somebody in self-defense, you have to prove that you were reasonable in killing that person. Proving that you're, quote, reasonable when you kill someone in self-defense is not as easy as you might think, and it has a lot to do with who you are and who threatened you. Take the case of Carol Stonehouse. Yes, I found this case absolutely fascinating. Carol Stonehouse was a police officer working in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in 1980. Soon after she joined the force, Carol briefly dated a fellow police officer named William Welsh. When she tried to end the relationship, it became violent. For several years, she tried to avoid this man who would stalk her, who would threaten her. At one point, I believe he showed up at her house Um, broke into her house, um, destroyed some of her belongings. Um, At one point, he left her flowers and said those were the flowers for her funeral. As a cop herself, Carol reported William's behavior to internal affairs at the police department. Nothing was done. She called the cops on him. Nothing was done. Carol moved eight times in just three years to avoid William's aggressions. He kept on stalking her. Finally, one night, he came to her home, and he threatened to kill her. He broke into her home. She called the police. Um, The police didn't arrive um, for a while, and then she managed to force him back outside. During all this time, William had a three fifty seven Magnum revolver. Now he was behind the house. Carol stepped out onto her back deck when... He said, you're done now. I'm going to kill you. And instead, she pulled out her gun and shot him. The police finally arrived, found that the ex-boyfriend was dead in the yard, and they arrested Carol Stonehouse. Carol was arrested and convicted of third-degree murder. She was sentenced to 7 to 14 years in prison. 
In the United States, there's something called the Castle Doctrine. It's this idea that your home is a protected place, your castle, and you've got the right to defend it, if need be, with deadly force. The big question is, who really has a right to the castle? Typically, our courts um, and our justice system are going to interpret the man as having a higher stake in ownership of that castle or the home that they share. This is a difficult problem to parse out, especially when the attacker lives in the same home as the victim. But Carol Stalker didn't even live with her. The final attack took place after William broke into her home. Carol Stonehouse's case is also fascinating because she was defending her home. Her ex-boyfriend had absolutely no possessive rights in her property, and she was on her property when she shot and killed her ex-boyfriend, and yet she still went to prison for um, wrongful violence. So that's a great question about, you know, whose home, who gets to defend their home? Um, Who actually has ownership over the home or the castle that we hold to be so sacrosanct? In the end, the jury didn't believe, Carol, that despite the years of harassment and threats, she had a reasonable fear for her life. Years later, in 1990, Carol got a retrial, and she was acquitted. The judge in the second trial, Judge John W. O'Brien, said Carol was the victim of, quote, battered woman syndrome and was, quote, in a frenzied state. She reasonably believed that she was in imminent danger of death at the time she fired her weapon at Welsh. I find it fascinating that our dominant society likes to celebrate this notion that everybody has a natural right to defend themselves, when in reality, when you look at Carol Stonehouse and other survivors of intimate partner violence, when they try to protect themselves from their violent male partners, they end up going to prison. The right to use deadly force in self-defense has greatly expanded in many states. The passage of so-called stand-your-ground laws eliminates the duty to retreat from a threat. In other words, you're not required to first try to avoid violence before using force to defend yourself. Florida has one of the most expansive stand-your-ground laws. George Zimmerman successfully used a stand-your-ground defense when he was charged with murder for killing Trayvon Martin. But what happens when a woman uses Stand Your Ground to protect herself from intimate partner violence? My name is Callie Adams. I am a 22-year veteran of the United States Marine Corps uh, from Jacksonville, Florida. By the time she was in sixth grade, Callie knew she wanted to be a Marine. Her stepdad was a Marine. When she was 16, she met Rodney. They had an instant connection. We started off friends, we hung out, we laughed, we joked. They were young and in love. It was great. It was absolutely amazing. They broke up when she graduated high school. Callie joined the Marines. But they never lost touch. And then they reconnected and decided to get married. He was somebody that I felt was my soulmate. Uh, I wanted to marry him. I wanted to be his wife. Callie described Rodney as happy-go-lucky. When we first uh, were together, I don't think, I think I saw him upset one time and he wasn't combative. But when they moved to Camp Lejeune in North Carolina, where Callie was stationed. 
that's when I saw the anger side of him. Married life wasn't like it was in those high school sweetheart days. If something ticked him off, he went from zero to like 120 in like 3.2 seconds. There was no buildup. Rodney's temper could explode on Callie. Or their kids. My kids, of course. I, you know, you have to stand in the middle of him when he, get, when he disciplined them. You know, you have to say, hey, that's enough. I had to always monitor him when he disciplined them to ensure that he didn't hurt them to a point where it wasn't, you know, they need medical attention. One time a fight landed Callie in the emergency room. A nurse tried to warn her, this isn't going to stop. But Callie wouldn't believe it. That's all I knew. I didn't know anything else. Yeah. I mean, my uncles were violent with their wives. And, you know, it was always a thought process. Well, well, what did you do to make them feel that way? Or something of that nature. You know, that that was my mindset. Honestly, truthfully, I thought that, you know, a lot of the times I thought, well, you know, had I not done this, then he wouldn't do this. Callie never pursued a restraining order. Rodney was never arrested for domestic violence. For Valentine's Day one year, Rodney got Callie a handgun. At the time, she was working as a recruiter for the Marines. Rodney thought she needed a gun, something to protect herself from strangers. So I would be out late at night um, by myself, um, you know, because I was a recruiter. I'd have to talk to people or see people, and so it was something that he felt I needed to have. So Callie had a gun, and she had a concealed weapons permit. Sometimes she kept the gun in her truck's console. Then on July 22, 2011, Callie and Rodney went out to celebrate their anniversary. We had left the house to go to one club, and we were there and partied and had a good time. We got to happy hour. So at that club, we had some drinks. He had Long Island iced teas, and I had what they call a lay-me-down. About 9 o'clock, he was like, hey, let's go over to this other club. And I was like, okay, fine, we can go over there. We had been talking to a couple people in the club, so everybody, you know, got in their cars, and we went over to the, the other club. So we got there. We were actually in the club. We spoke to some people that we knew. When they got there, Callie sat down and started talking to some friends. Rodney left for the bathroom. After a while, Callie and a girlfriend left to use the bathroom, too. So I come back from the bathroom, me and her, and he, he's looking for me. He's like, where you been? And I was like, I went to the bathroom. I told old girl to tell you I went to the bathroom. He's like, I've been looking for you for an hour. It's like, Ronnie, you have not been looking for me for an hour. I just went to the bathroom. And so he was like, fine, I'm ready to go. So I'm like, okay, not a problem. By this time... I didn't realize he was as upset as he was. Callie and Rodney said goodbye to their friends and left the club. Rodney was fuming. So we get to the car, and I'm on the driver's side of the car, and he's walking towards the passenger side. He goes, well, you've been missing forever. And I was like, Rodney, you have not been looking for me for an hour. I just went to the bathroom. And by the time I turned around, he is around the car saying, bitch, you're not going to fucking yell at me. He grabs my head and starts to hit me. So I sit down in the driver's seat, and he begins to hit me. Well, in the console of the car that we're in was my gun. 
I was able to get it out of the console and I pointed it to him. I said, just back up and let me go. I told you to stop hitting me. He backs up out of the car, out of the driver's side door. I closed the door, set the gun on the car, on the seat of the car, and went to go put the car in reverse, and he jumped in the back seat. And I'm backing out, and at this time, he's like, bitch, you pull a gun on me, I'll kill us both. And he begins to hit me, strike me in the back of my head. I was scared. I was, I couldn't, I didn't, it was a lot going on, I can't. I mean, I can't pinpoint all the emotions that I was feeling, but I didn't know why we were at the point that we were at and what. I was just scared. I'm like, why is he hitting me? And at this time, I'm I'm slowly going through the parking lot, trying to get out of the parking lot, and I'm saying, stop hitting me. Just stop hitting me. And he kept going, so I grabbed the gun. I don't know how he was hit. All I knew was I fired the gun. And he got got hit. Callie stopped the car. She pulled Rodney out of the back seat. She called 911, started CPR. A police officer showed up. She begged him to call an ambulance. He put her in the back seat of his squad car. And they left. They told me when I got to the police station that he died at the scene. And so I gave my statement. And they placed me under arrest. That's in stark contrast to how the police treated George Zimmerman in the Trayvon Martin case, also in Florida, not two hours away. That was one of the most shocking things about the case was the fact that he wasn't arrested. That's Marianne Franks. She's a professor at the University of Miami Law School. Trying to imagine what the the scenario was like, that you have police called to the scene and you have a young black man who's dead and you have um, someone like George Zimmerman saying, you know, I I, I killed him in self-defense. And even though they do question him, they don't actually arrest him. And it isn't for months until public outcry that he is actually arrested. And if we could try to imagine a scenario where if the shooter had been African-American or, or really, um, really any other scenario where you could imagine that the police officers would simply say, well, yes, this looks a little, you know, there's a dead person here, but the other person is saying that it was justified, so I guess we're just going to believe them. That was a really shocking moment because it's hard to imagine that happening um, in any number of other cases if the, the victim had been white, um, if this had been some other type of neighborhood, really hard to imagine. According to the police department, the reason why they acted that way was because Sandra Ground Law said that they were not allowed to arrest Zimmerman. Now, that was not actually a, a misreading of the law. It, it sounds, if you look at what the statute actually says, it says if someone has acted in accordance with the section that details Sandra Ground, they're not supposed to be criminally prosecuted, including being investigated. So however much slack the police department might have gotten for that, and rightfully so, They were not wrong to say that the statute essentially tells them that that's what they have to do. Callie, on the other hand, was straightaway arrested and charged with murder. The prosecuting attorney said Callie wasn't afraid for her life. She said Callie was angry. She said that I didn't display any type of remorse. 
that he never, I never reported domestic violence before. So, um, I wasn't an abused wife because I made most of the money. I could have left at any time. The murder charge rested on this image of Callie as an angry woman who showed no remorse at the death of her husband, specifically when she made the 911 call. Critics point out that the prosecution's characterization of Callie was essentially that of a stereotypically, quote, angry black woman. That Callie, as a woman of color, wasn't capable of experiencing reasonable fear for her life. Yet Kelly was still expected, somehow, to escape. Their thing was, you could have got out of the car and, and went and told somebody. I'm sorry, I, I don't know people that are in a fight or being jumped on that can say, hey, can you wait a minute while I go over here and tell somebody that I've been, I've, I'm being assaulted? Marianne says Florida's stand-your-ground law does little for women like Kelly, who are the victims of intimate partner violence. The courts have answered this overwhelmingly by saying that really it's about the man's right to stand and fight because when women stand and fight, they are often accused or, uh, in fact, convicted of uh, things like manslaughter or even homicide, even if they happen to be defending themselves. In fact, Marianne says stand your ground laws like the one in Florida can actually make it more difficult for a woman to defend herself from intimate partner violence. There is, for instance, a provision in the Stand Your Ground law in Florida that says that when they're talking about the presumptions that a person has inside their own home about whether or not they can use reasonable force, this will not apply to someone who is responding to another person who is a lawful inhabitant of that residence. In other words, in the typical domestic violence, uh, domestic violence victim scenario, the person who is afraid of the a person who happens to live in the home should not be able to use stand your ground as a defense. Marianne echoes a theme we talked about last time in episode six. Women are far more likely to be attacked by an intimate partner, a husband, ex, or boyfriend, than by a stranger. I mean, if we think about the fact that the vast majority of female victims of crime are not being attacked in the alleyways by strangers, they're being attacked by people they know, by boyfriends, by husbands. Unless we think that women are going to strap a gun to their thigh every time they have a dinner with their husband or every time they go out on a date, we can't really imagine that these guns would be effective in the situations where they would need self-defense the most. Caroline Light, the professor who told us about Carol Stonehouse, agrees. What often gets lost or dismissed in the discourse around guns for self-defense is the fact that Arming women is not going to solve our sexual violence or domestic violence problems because the law is not necessarily geared towards protecting women from their own partners. Callie posted a $100,000 bond and was on house arrest for six years. She also had to pay more than $300 a month for an ankle monitor. She had to liquidate her 401k to pay for the bond and her lawyers. She got by on donations and support from family. A friend of Callie's helped her get a job, but it had to be something simple that could be done from home. She missed weddings, funerals, and graduations. And then a new state attorney was elected. State attorney Melissa Nelson says dropping the charges is the right thing to do. Since February, personally, have undertaken a thorough review of the entire matter. She took a look at my case. And I have spoken to every relevant witness in law enforcement. She talked to my children. She talked to his side of the family. 
She talked to his friend. Um, and I have come to the conclusion that there does not exist a reasonable probability of conviction on the facts. And she decided that based on what was said, I had the right to defend myself. And for that reason, I have dropped the charges. So she dropped the case. Kelly lost those six years and all her retirement savings. And of course, she's still struggling with the trauma of having killed the flawed man she loved. But she's not bitter. She's grateful that the state attorney dropped the case against her. I don't know of any other miracle, honestly and truthfully, and I'm just going to be honest. A black woman who has been uh, charged with a violent crime to have her charges dropped, that ain't nothing but a miracle. When is it reasonable to use violent force in self-defense? What's a credible threat? And when is your life in imminent danger? The answers to these questions hinge on assumptions we make about the aggressor and the victim. Women are all too often painted as emotional and not reasonable, whether that's in politics, the workplace, or in intimate relationships. And black people are seen as more threatening than others. That ain't nothing but a miracle, says Callie, that a black woman charged with a violent crime was exonerated. That really struck a chord with me. It's why in our next couple episodes, we're going to take a closer look at how gun rights and fear intersect with race. If you or someone you know is experiencing intimate partner violence, you can call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233. That's 1-800-799-SAFE. All calls to the hotline are confidential and anonymous. Again, that number is 1-800-799-SAFE. Today's episode of In Sickness and in Health was produced by Zach Dyer and me. Our theme music is by Alan Vest. Additional music by the Blue Dot Sessions. You can learn more about this podcast and how to engage with us on social media at insicknessandinhealthpodcast.com. That's insicknessandinhealthpodcast.com. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps more people find out about the show. I'm Dr. Celine Gounder. This is In Sickness and in Health.